Well, good afternoon, and thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute, and today we're going to be talking a little bit about immigration and the E-Verify program, uh, which is kind of odd because I think the only thing being talked about on Capitol Hill right now is the debt and deficit and related negotiations. But we're going to take things in a slightly different direction and talk about, again, immigration, E-Verify, two uh, extraordinarily uh, important and intertwined uh, uh, concepts. And uh, we kind of have an interdisciplinary uh, panel from Cato here today. Uh, we're going to have uh, both our immigration expert and our expert on, uh, on privacy and uh, uh, other security issues. Uh, batting uh, leadoff here today is going to be Jim Harper. Uh, he is the Director of Information Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. If you're wondering what Information Policy Studies is, uh, you're not alone, because we're pretty confident Jim just made it up so he could study whatever the heck he wanted to. Uh, Jim says that it's about uh, adapting law and policy to the unique problems of the information age in areas such as privacy, telecommunications, intellectual property, and security. We'll just have to take his word on that. Uh, he was a founding member of the Department of Homeland Security's Data Privacy and Integrity Advisory Committee. Uh, I'd also like to point out that he wrote a book called Identity Crisis, which uh, is subtitled How, How Identification is Overused and Misunderstood. Um, I once told somebody that this was a much better book than they would imagine, and uh, Jim has taken that little quip and run with it and now says that uh, I, he claims that I said it's the least, it's a less bad book than you'd expect or something of that variety. It's actually a very interesting read, and I should note that we do provide uh, books free of charge to all Hill staffers, all of our Cato books. Um, pretty much all of our policy materials are free online with the exception of our, our books, but if you're interested in getting a copy uh, of this or any of our other publications, you can, of course, just let me know or one of my colleagues at Cato. With that, I will turn things over to Jim Harper. Thank you, Brandon. Brandon's always um, good with the introduction, and maybe it's my interpretation of what he said, but yeah, a, a, a less bad policy book than you'd expect from me is my book, Identity Crisis. And I'm going to talk today about uh, uh, a not-as-terrible policy analysis that I wrote a few years ago than you might expect from me, which is about um, electronic employment eligibility verification. I'm going to focus mostly on uh, electronic employment eligibility verification, the E-Verify program, uh, as, as you all know it. Maybe, maybe it's a welcome relief to talk about immigration and E-Verify today rather than um, the... Uh, the budget negotiations. Um, of all things, this could be a pleasure for you, given, given the alternatives. Um, hopefully, uh, myself and, and Dan Griswold will inform and entertain you a little bit while you learn some more um, good thinking, we hope, about uh, how to approach immigration, in particular, for my part, the E-Verify program. I'm going to start with some history of E-Verify and, and internal enforcement generally, which E-Verify is, is just one, the, the latest iteration of. And then I'm going to go into the sort of uh, technical problems that most people skip right past. I do study technology, and that's how I got into this. I'm not an immigration expert, but I study technology and technology systems and their integration with people in society and how, how they uh, are meant to work and how they fail and, and sometimes how they succeed. We have a lot of success, obviously, but it's not necessarily so that you can just sprinkle technology onto economic and social problems and fix those problems. And I think uh, E-Verify is an illustration of that point. Internal enforcement, this concept that has brought us to, to E-Verify today, uh, has a fairly short history. It's about a 25-year history, and it starts in 1986 when Congress passed the Immigration Reform and Control Act. That law 
for the first time just 25 years ago uh, made it unlawful for employers to knowingly hire an illegal immigrant and it created the system that you, you're probably familiar with, the I-9 form, where a new hire at a, at, a, at a job has to submit a certain amount of documentation and a form filled out, and the employer has to make a copy of it and put it into his or her files. The I-9 system uh, basically didn't affect illegal immigration rates. And so 10 years later, when Congress revisited immigration reform, in the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act of 1996, uh, it started to work on ways to improve on the I-9. In my notes here, I put quotes around improve because that was their intention, but it's not necessarily the result. And E-Verify would similarly improve in, in quotes on, um, on that system. Among three pilot programs that Congress uh, called for in the 1996 Act was a thing called Basic Pilot. A basic pilot was the idea that employers would check the information on the I-9 form against the files that the federal government held, uh, chiefly at uh, the Social Security Administration, where they would check the name against the Social Security number, and in some cases with uh, the uh, immigration authorities, where they would compare, for example, an immigration identifier with the, with the database information there. Uh, likewise, however, under basic pilot, a small but growing program during the ensuing 10 years, illegal immigration rates didn't, didn't generally change, and certainly not based on that program. They're probably much more driven by economics, and it's something that Dan Griswold might speak to in his main remarks or, or on Q&A. But during the Bush administration, uh, basic pilot uh, got a lot of uh, political muscle behind it. The administration itself backed it. Uh, renaming basic pilot first to employment eligibility verification, which is kind of clumsy, and then to the dandy name E-Verify, which sounds great. It sounds like you're going to be able to electronically verify with it. And in some cases you will, but in many cases you won't. 2008, uh, the Bush administration issued an executive order requiring E-Verify uh, to be used with people hired to work on federal contracts or the people working on federal contracts. And over the last five years, six, seven years, uh, many states have required, begun to require either all employers in the state to use E-Verify or state agencies and contractors to use E-Verify. Right now, uh, I believe the states that require all employers to use E-Verify are Arizona, Alabama, Mississippi, and South Carolina. There are 10 states in addition to those that require E-Verify for state agencies and contracts, contractors. Um, with with limited success or some success. The success that gets reported in states' use of E-Verify is often just by examining the immigration rates in that one state. Now in Arizona, there has been a report of a slight decline of illegal immigrants in the state. Uh, is that a success of E-Verify? Or is it, does it reflect the fact that people have moved from the hostile state of Arizona to other states around the country, including Washington State, which is a relatively friendly state? And I, I came across a recent news report of a man who moved his, his family up there because, uh, because Arizona was so hostile and Washington so relatively welcoming. The reason why that matters is because the success rates you might see from E-Verify vary. Uh, they, they don't extrapolate out from a state's results when you go national because then there's no place to, for an illegal immigrant to go except to the economically constrained environment that they came from, usually Mexico or Central America. 
So the question of, of whether E-Verify should go national is not just a matter of taking the numbers you see in the limited number of states that have, that have required their employers to use E-Verify, but it's thinking about the different problems that will come from E-Verify when it goes national. But I'll turn now to the problem of sprinkling technology, like I said, on economic and social problems. Um, this is a big technology problem, E-Verify, but a lot of the problem is also the many complex interfaces with humans. You have administrators in the Social Security Administration. You have individuals who want to work. You have employers who want to hire them. Uh, you have people who want to defeat the system in various ways. Uh, you have people who don't do as good a job as they should implementing E-Verify. Or in the, in the Social Security Administration, DHS, um, ver validating people's identifiers that go into this system. So it's much more about the human problems than it is about the te technological problems. It's conceivable, in theory, to build a system that does everything E-Verify needs to do, but it's very, very hard in practice to make that system interface with all the humans and all their different, uh, uh, all the different things that they're trying to get done, including work and support their families despite federal law. So how do you administer a federal grant of permission to work? Let me say first that I have a hard time asking that question because there is not supposed to be in the United States of America under a constitution a federal grant of permission to work. Permission to work shouldn't exist. Working should depend on willingness to work and the willingness of someone to pay you. That's the way it is in a free country, and I strongly believe it should stay that way or be returned to that way. But when, when posed the question, how do you administer a federal grant of permission to work, it's basically a two-step process. One, you have to identify everyone, and two, you have to uh, compare their identity to status data. That is, were they born in the United States? Do they have a Social Security number? Do they have an immigration control number that shows that they, they are allowed to work? Most people focus on item two, which is the comparison of identity data to status data. And you'll hear, you're probably, if you're, if you're watching this issue, you're probably hearing about error rates where the Social Security Administration databases have error rates in the low single-digit percentages, but at a national level, you're talking about hundreds, and thousands, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people uh, being refused in the first instance uh, access to work because of the E-Verify program. You're hearing about the complexities involved in correcting those records when they are inaccurate. The American citizen born in the United States who perhaps has gotten married and changed her name, uh, may be refused work, given a, tempor a, 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 a temporary non-confirmation notice uh, that tells her she has to go down to a Social Security Administration office or Department of Homeland Security office to get this straightened out within eight days. Now, you're starting a new job. You're trying to support your family. But instead of going to your job, you're supposed to go down to an SSA office that is already overburdened with the work Congress has already put on it. And it's, according to SSA union uh, representatives, it's not well enough funded to do the job that Congress has given to it. You're hearing about discrimination and other, and other misuses. Uh, obviously, an employer who's trying to run the business is not going to do a very good job of doing exactly what the instructions in the Memorandum of Understanding put out by the E-Verify program would have them do which includes telling them, oh, you've received a temporary non-confirmation. You need to go through these steps X, Y, and Z. Rather, employers will pre-screen. 
Now, that's against the rules, but the smart employer will pre-screen, and if someone has a problem, they'll just won't even hire them in the first place. If they don't pre-screen, um, they'll dim discriminate more flatly. That is, people with um, Hispanic surnames or people who have an accent, they will, they will decline to hire simply because they, they worry about the, the bureaucratic burden that they'll take on by hiring someone. You may be hearing about the counterattacks and complications involved in an E-Verify type system. Uh, that's something I wrote about in my, in my policy analysis where I went into the identity and technology issues uh, with a great deal more care than you'll, than you'll get from me today. Uh, counterattacks include things like identity fraud. So the I-9 system uh, and basic pilot are very easy to defraud. You simply get a name and a social security number that match up. And when you present that name and social security number, an ID that is close enough to be yours, um, you're through the system. Strengthening, strengthening E-Verify um, will probably not just cause everybody to throw up their hands and go away. Rather, they will deepen the identity frauds that they commit. That's one of the counterattacks on the system. Another, of course, will be more working under the table. That is, employers do want to hire people, and people do want to work. There's a way for them to get together on that, and that's to get out from under the system entirely. Um, do the work off the books. Don't pay taxes. Don't pay into Social Security. Don't do E-Verify, Basic Pilot, or any of this, this other stuff. Let's just get the job done. So expect that to grow under a national E-Verify mandate. But that, that counterattack, the identity fraud counterattack, which is an area that I've worked on, uh, brings me to point number one in how you implement E-Verify, which is identify everyone. And you're seeing now as perhaps the future history of E-Verify is rolled out, and let's hope this isn't its future history, uh, that H.R. 2164, Mr. Smith's proposal, has in it uh, a call for a biometric employment eligibility verification pilot program. So that's taking your your I-9 form, and you're taking basic pilot, you're taking E-Verify, and you're now going to make it biometric to where identifying everyone will be done better. Now, believe me, there are counterattacks and complications on biometric <coughs> systems, just like there are on systems that use every other kind of identifier. But believe me just as well that you'll find the law-abiding American citizen and lawful resident signed up for that biometric national ID program while others are not. So the law-abiding citizen ends up in a national ID program. The problems remain in place, and the battle of, of the, again, the complexities and complications, counterattacks, those all continue. I'm particularly concerned and have de dedicated quite a few years uh, to battling the national ID system. Now, we have a, a law in the country, the Real ID Act, which purports to create a national ID, and I've worked for years with colleagues at the ACLU and friends on the right as well to oppose that national ID system because it's inconsistent with American liberty and American values. But we're looking at that national ID system being pushed forward through the E-Verify mandate as well. Watch for this kind of system, once in place, should it be in place, to be used to control not just access to working, but access to health care, uh, access to guns and ammunition, access to housing, access to financial services and credit. We're talking about a system that would be a massive transfer of power from the individual, from the local government, from the state government, to the federal government, a massive growth of federal government power. If the E-Verify system and the national ID that is implicit within it get created. So a couple, um, a, a couple high-level thoughts that I want to share with you before I turn it over to the solver of all these problems, Dan Griswold. 
think about think about this issue in terms of principle, and there are lots of different principles to, to go to. Uh, decades ago now, the Attorney General of the United States, William French Smith, in the very same context we're dealing with it today, suggested to the President of the United States that we should have a national ID for immigration control. And President Ronald Reagan said, maybe we should just brand all the babies. He scoffed at that idea, and he rightly he should. Think in terms of the costs and regulatory costs. Uh, it would cost, and will cost if it goes forward, billions of dollars billions of dollars that we do not have to create a national ID system. Uh, those are the numbers that show up on the books. Then there are billions more dollars in costs that are the imposition on businesses and workers who, spend, who would spend an extraordinary amount of time trying to solve these problems and, and comply with these mandates. Then there's constitutional principle. And I'm not making a point that E-Verify would be unconstitutional, but it's important to keep constitutional principle in mind. It is a role of the federal government to control immigration and to control our borders, mostly for the purposes of securing the country against attack. But it's fine to control immigration. But there's a clause in the, in the U.S. Constitution that's very important to keep in mind, and that's the necessary and proper clause. The necessary and proper clause does not have the meaning many use it for, which is anything goes if we think it's necessary and proper. But it's a way of honing in on the necessary and proper things that achieve another legitimate function that's listed in the Constitution. So, if you want to control illegal immigration, think, is it necessary and especially is it proper to create a national ID system that all Americans have to be in? Is it proper to control immigration, to require all employers to review the background and documentation of all workers? I think that's a legitimate function of government spilling over its bounds into something that is improper and Dan Griswold will tell you why it's unnecessary. So it's important to me for you to understand my thinking on this. We have some paper outside. I'm always willing to take your questions. You can phone me up at Cato or email me at jharper at cato.org. Uh, the, basic, the basic message here is that internal enforcement uh, is an extension of immigration control that goes too far, and the E-Verify program in particular is an extension that goes too far, and we should reject it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jim. Uh, next up, we have Dan Griswold. Uh, Dan is the director of the Herbert A. Stifel Center for Trade Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. He works there primarily on, obviously, trade issues, but also immigration. Uh, he's the author of numerous books and papers and articles. I'll just note his most recent book, uh, Mad About Trade. Uh, I believe it just came out last year, Why Main Street, uh, Why Main Street America Should Embrace Globalization. Uh, not really pertinent necessarily to today's topic, but it's a great book and certainly worth uh, checking out. Uh, Dan, actually, like Jim, was a former Hill staffer as well. He was a press secretary for former Congressman Vin Weber, uh, and he's appeared uh, before Congress, both House and Senate committees, testifying on trade and immigration issues. Dan? Thank you very much, Brandon, and thank you, everybody, for uh, coming out today. I think Jim's done a great job of telling you what's wrong with E-Verify in this latest employment scheme, but somebody will say, okay, smarty pants, what's your idea? Uh, for fixing the problem, and it's a fair question. I think there is an answer to illegal immigration sitting in the middle of the table, uh, right under our noses, that involves uh, shrinking the scope and intrusiveness of government and expanding the private sector, which is exactly what we need, and that is expanding opportunities for legal uh, immigration. I think to understand why we have a problem with illegal immigration, we have to understand why they come. Uh, and I think, as in so much in life, it's a story of 
supply and demand, demand and supply. Uh, we continue to have a demand for low-skilled workers uh, in this country. We, uh, in normal years, are creating hundreds of thousands of net new jobs uh, each year that require relatively few skills. We all know where those jobs are in retail, in the restaurant business, hotel business, agriculture, uh, construction, uh, those sorts of jobs. And at the same time, the pool of native-born Americans who traditionally filled those jobs continues to shrink. We're talking about adult Americans in the workforce without a high school diploma. Believe it or not, in the early 60s, half of adult Americans in the workforce did not have a high school diploma. Uh, today it's under 10% and shrinking. That's good news. Uh, it's shrunk by uh, 3 million in the last decade. It's going to shrink by another 2 or 3 million over the next decade. Another pool of workers that have filled those jobs, younger workers age 16 to 24, that's going to shrink uh, by close to a million over the next decade. It's just pure demographics. <clears throat> and so what you have is a, is a structural gap in our labor force. You have a declining pool of workers, native-born workers, increasing demand, Who's traditionally filled the gap? Immigrant workers. And here's the rub. There is no sufficient legal channel in our immigration system to allow low-skilled immigrant workers to enter the country and fill these jobs. Uh, if you're a computer programmer with a master's degree from India or China, there's a way to come in. If you marry an American or are closely related to an American, you can get in. But if you're just a hardworking, peaceable 24-year-old from Mexico or Guatemala, there's no way to enter the country, so you come in illegally. And that's why we have widespread illegal immigration. We have tried fixing this problem through enforcement only, and it's been a failure. Uh, you know, I like to ask my conservative friends, how long do we have to try to throw resources at a problem without results before we try something uh, different? In the last two decades, we have increased spending on border enforcement by 700%. The number of agents at the southwest border has increased five-fold. Uh, we've built hundreds of miles of fences along the border. We have ramped up interior enforcement uh, along the lines that Jim has talked about, and yet the number of illegal immigrants over that period has tripled, uh, almost tripled, from, or more than tripled, from 3 million uh, to 11 million. You know, imagine the complaints if this were a, an education program where we'd increased funding uh, and gotten no uh, results. E-Verify and other enforcement uh, schemes hold out the false hope that we can create job openings for Americans that Americans want to fill by just somehow uh, rooting out these 7 or 8 million uh, low-skilled, unauthorized workers. Uh, that is based on the false belief uh, that American workers and low-skilled immigrant workers are interchangeable. They're not. Uh, they're different. Uh, these low-skilled immigrant workers are taking jobs uh, that a sufficient number of Americans are simply not interested in filling uh, under current uh, conditions. There's a fundamental mismatch uh, between the pay and working conditions for many of these jobs and the qualifications and the aspirations of Americans, both employed and unemployed. There are simply not enough Americans who are ready and willing to pluck chickens, uh, to uh, uh, nail uh, shingles, or pick onions in the noonday sun, or scrub toilets uh, through the night. There are just not enough of them there. That's why we need legal 
low-skilled immigrant labor uh, in this country. We cannot enforce our way out of our unemployment problem. Uh, our unemployment is not caused by too many immigrants. In fact, if you look at the long-term relationship, it's just the opposite. More immigrants tend to come when we have low unemployment. When we have high unemployment, they tend not to come uh, or, or go home. And that's the main reason why we have a, uh, a million fewer low-skilled, unauthorized immigrants in the country today than we did two or three years ago, because the jobs aren't here, so they don't come or they go home. And even if we could reduce low-skilled immigration through enforcement at the border or interior enforcement, it wouldn't help our economy. It would actually hurt uh, our economy. Uh, two years ago, Cato uh, published a study by two very prestigious economists who have done work for the International Trade Commission, for the Homeland Security Department. Uh, they did a general equilibrium analysis of what would happen if uh, interior and border enforcement actually worked, and we were able to reduce the number of low-skilled immigrants in the country by 28.6%. Uh, and they found that American households, after 10 years, American households would actually be worse off by $80 billion. Why is that? Well, because low-skilled immigrants actually create employment opportunities for middle-class Americans. By allowing the industries that employ those workers to expand and to, to more readily meet the needs of the marketplace, they create opportunities for managers, sales representatives, accountants, uh, even engineers and other jobs uh, like that. They allow Americans to move up uh, the skill ladder to jobs that are more productive and have uh, higher pay. It attracts more investment to those industries and actually expands uh, employment opportunities across the board. And, and more investment means more tax revenue uh, for, for the government. Uh, <clears throat> and so the cost of keeping those low-skilled immigrants out is actually less revenue, uh, less investment uh, in those sectors, less relatively fewer job opportunities uh, for uh, native-born Americans in middle uh, income uh, work uh, positions. And by the opposite, the study found that if we increased legal immigration through comprehensive immigration reform, uh, you, you can regulate it, uh, charge fees, uh, reduce smuggler fees, and let the government uh, capture that revenue uh, in the terms of fees, uh, U.S. households would actually be better off by $180 billion. Just do the simple math, put eight. $80 billion loss versus $180 billion gain, that's a quarter of a trillion dollars difference between getting immigration policy right and getting it wrong. Last time I checked, that's still real money uh, in, in Washington. The most cost-effective, freedom-friendly way of dealing with illegal immigration is to expand opportunities for legal uh, immigration. And the only answer is, I think, whatever you want to call it, uh, comprehensive immigration reform, expanded legalization, uh, but we need to have more opportunities for those needed workers to enter the country legally. Uh, Homeland Security Secretary Napolitano, I think, has talked usefully about a three-legged stool. And for immigration reform to work, you have to have all three legs, otherwise it doesn't work. You have to have some way of legalizing the 11 million people here already illegally. We're not going to deport them, and if we could, it would be at great economic uh, and human uh, cost. This isn't talking about amnesty, but about uh, some kind of temporary legal status. Uh, they pay fines, back taxes, security checks, 
uh, no jumping the queue uh, for a permanent uh, legal status. Uh, and then I think the key component is you have to have uh, legalization of future flows. You have to be able to accommodate the ongoing future needs of our economy, this, this structural gap, uh, allow legal workers to fill uh, that gap through a temporary worker program. And then you need smart enforcement for those still operating outside the system. Jim and I aren't against uh, enforcement in, in principle, but let's go after people who are real criminals and terrorists and intending to do us harm and not be wasting government resources and compromising our liberties, going after people who want to pound shingles and, uh, and scrub toilets and uh, pick our, our lettuce. So I think that's, that's the difference. You have all three of those uh, uh, legs. Uh, I know legislation has been introduced by Senator um, Menendez of New Jersey and others under the title of Comprehensive Immigration Reform, and I think their hearts are in the right place. But if you look at that, it's missing one of the legs, and that is the temporary worker program, the provision for future uh, uh, workers. Uh, <clears throat> the Menendez bill does have legalization of those who are here. It has promises of increased enforcement. But, hey, that is just 1986 all over again. People point to IRCA. And everybody recognizes 1986, the Immigration Reform and Control Act, was a failure. It didn't stop uh, illegal immigration because it was missing that third leg of the stool. It had a one-time amnesty. It had promises of increased enforcement, uh, and, and it failed. We do know from experience, hard American experience, that if you expand opportunities for legal immigration, illegal immigration will drop dramatically. Uh, in the 1940s, Congress began a program called the Bracero Program. During World War II, when able-bodied Americans were off fighting, uh, we allowed low-skilled Mexicans to enter the country and work uh, mostly on farms in the south, Southwest, the Bracero Program. It had some flaws, but uh, <clears throat> we found that the more visas that we issued under, under the Bracero Program, the fewer apprehensions were made at the border. In fact, in the early 50s, we had a problem with illegal immigration. We were apprehending a million people a year at the border. Uh, the INS at the time increased the visas dramatically, and apprehensions at the border dropped by 95%. These workers may be low-skilled. They may not have the education of the typical American, but they're not dumb. If you give them an opportunity to enter the country legally, take a bus across a port of entry, to enjoy uh, documentation, protections, and responsibilities of the law, to be able to go home and visit their family, uh, they will come here legally uh, rather than illegally. And I think we should learn the same lesson uh, from them. You know, we could hypothetically reduce illegal immigration in the United States through enforcement only, but at what cost? At what cost to our civil liberties uh, of native-born Americans? How many more billions do we need to spend on border enforcement and interior enforcement? How many more agents uh, stationed at the border? How many times do we have to send the National Guard down to the border? How many factories and kitchens do we need to raid with guns drawn? How many more miles of ugly fence across private property? How many more liberties uh, do we need to surrender uh, to, to the government, all in the dubious cause of enforcing a law that, that serves no national purpose uh, and is out of step with the fundamental needs uh, of the American economy. There is a better way. We can change our immigration laws to reflect 
the economic needs and the values of this great country. Comprehensive immigration reform, including a robust temporary worker program, is the answer. It's right there on the table. Republicans and Democrats alike have to face down uh, noisy minority constituents uh, and come together uh, and get this passed. Thank you very much.